The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome, one and all. Welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. Relax tonight. There's a storm raging outside this studio right now. I want you all just to relax, settle in for the next great, great ride we have for you for the next hour and the hour after that. Peter Lavenda returns tonight. He's got a new book out called The Hitler Legacy. And just to start us off, to tell you exactly where we're going to go tonight, and this is chilling, folks. Peter Lavenda has done some incredible research once again. Let me read this direct quote right from the book. The whole thrust of this book has been that American leaders in business, finance, media, and politics, you ready for this, collaborated with Nazis before, during, and after the war. The West share in the blame for Al-Qaeda and everybody goes back a long, long way. Before Eisenhower to a cabal of extremist U.S. Army generals and emigre Eastern Europeans who didn't have much of a problem with Nazism since they feared communism more. We're going to get into that tonight, folks. The church, the Tibetans, the Japanese and Germans, the Croatians and the Americans all felt that communism was the greatest danger long before World War II. We enlisted war criminals to fight on our side. We appropriated the idea of global jihad from the Nazis and their World War I predecessors. We amped up their plan to weaponize religion and convinced Muslims who hated each other to band together to fight communism. And when Afghanistan was liberated and the Soviet Union was defeated, September 11, 2001, our cynical exploitation of religion has delivered a hideous stream of blowback that threatens the world to this day. With the Nazi diaspora, the leaders of the Third Reich who had survived were either living underground or were denazified and living freely above ground, constituted a government in exile. They remained in contact with each other, reinforced each other's beliefs, provided logistical support where possible, and kept 
the faith alive. The book, of course, is called The Hitler Legacy, The Nazi Cult and Diaspora, How It Was Organized, How It Was Funded, and Why It Remains a Threat to Global Security in the Age of Terrorism. Our guest tonight, Peter Lavenda. Peter Lavenda has traversed the world doing research and has crossed paths with many unsavory characters, including Palestine Liberation Organization, Ku Klux Klan, in South America, the Nazi sanctuary called Colonia Dijinadad, I probably mispronounced that name, in Chile. In Indonesia, he met Abu Bakar Bastir, who planned the Bali bombings in 2002 and founded the terrorist organization Jama Islamia. Peter has also studied secret societies across the globe. It is my pleasure to welcome back to Night Freight, Peter Lavenda. Peter, how are you, my friend? Oh, turn your microphone on. We can't hear you. It should be on. How's there this? it is. That's better. Okay. That's better, my friend. How are Thanks you? Thanks very much. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction, Brent. You're very, very welcome, my friend. Folks, you know, it's not often I really, really get behind a book, but this is a book you're going to want to add to your, uh, to your own library because there's some serious in-depth, as I turn it sideways, for the folks at home that are listening on radio, there's some serious in-depth research on this, and it's terrifying. Okay, let's start off at the beginning. Did Hitler survive? Did he survive the bunker? Well, that's a very good question, and if you had asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said he died on April 30th, 1945, in the bunker, like everybody said, committed suicide, along with Ava Brown, end of story. I had grown up with this uh, since I was a child. This was a story we all knew. Why would we question this part of history? It seems so obvious that must have been what happened. It was only when I started to go to Asia, when I started to hear stories about a possible Hitler sighting, uh, in Southeast Asia and all of that, I was kind of forced to take another look at the situation and I realized to my astonishment that there is no forensic evidence to prove that Hitler ever died in the bunker or died anywhere at all. All the evidence that we thought we had, including that famous skull fragment in Moscow, was proven later to be absolutely false. The skull fragment belonged to a woman and it wasn't Ava Brown. Uh, so the Soviets have been lying to us all along. Um, the evidence they had, according to uh, other reports, that they found the bodies in the bunker uh, partially burned, turned out to be false. The dental evidence turned out to be manufactured. It was like a case of an insurance fraud, where you try to you know, bury a body and claim it was yours, stick your, your ID in the body and hope that everyone thinks you're dead. That's basically what happened to Hitler and Eva Braun, according to my research. Um, did he survive? Well, there's no proof that he died. And there's a lot of sightings around the world. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, of the head of the FBI at the time, during World War II and after World War II, was not convinced that Hitler had died in the bunker. He asked his agents in Latin America and the United States to keep an eye open for Hitler sightings. And there was a number of reports that were sent back to his attention, which are in FBI files today, some of which are very suggestive, that maybe Hitler did manage to survive and wind up in Argentina. Uh, there's other sightings uh, around the world, including the one that I researched for the book Ratline, uh, which makes a very persuasive argument that perhaps Hitler did not stay in South America if, in fact, he went that far, but actually wound up in Southeast Asia, where he would have been a lot safer than someone like Eichmann, who was snatched from Latin America, uh, people who were surrounded by, by Nazis who could not be trusted. Hitler could not trust his own people. They tried to kill him in 1944 
in the famous Operation Valkyrie. So he knew that he could not trust his military, and there were a lot of the SS he couldn't trust either, especially when Heinrich Himmler basically tried to cut his own deal with the West. So it's possible that Hitler did survive, that he planned this months, if not longer, in advance, and decided he would head for warmer waters, a place where he would not be snatched, where he would be uh, protected, which would have been in a Muslim country like Indonesia. Good point. Now, what was the attraction for a lot of the ex-Nazis you write in this book to head to Indonesia? And then we'll cover Latin America after. But right away, I just want to cover what was the attraction for Indonesia? You would think, given the culture differences, or so I was led to believe before your book, there would have been a, a juxtaposition or polar attitudes between the two. Not so. No, I don't believe so. I think that in the first place, there was a lot of sympathy uh, for Islam, not particularly from Hitler himself in the beginning, uh, who considered everything untermenschen that wasn't an Aryan, everything was a subhuman or, or not uh, worthy of, uh, of survival. But Heinrich Himmler had a different point of view. Himmler saw in Islam a uh, comrades in arms, uh, first against the Jews in general, against the state of Israel, which had been uh, part, was part of a British mandate at the time. He believed that he could join forces with Muslims around the world in this fantasy that between the Germans, the Aryans, and the Muslims, they would be able to overthrow the colonialists, uh, meaning the British, the French, and the Russians for the most part, and by the way, the Americans as well. So I think he saw in Islam, Heinrich Himmler I'm talking about, he saw in Islam uh, a, a religion of warriors, a religion of masculinity, a religion that was not uh, what he called the, the slave religion of Christianity or Judaism. So there was a kind of an ideological uh, preference for Islam. If you had to take one of the Abrahamic religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, it was better to throw your lot in with Islam. Which is not to say the Muslims were Nazis, but they could be manipulated by the Germans for their own particular ends. And I think they saw that as a deep possibility. And so many, so many Germans mostly war criminals, but other members of uh, the military and the SS and various government functionaries wound up in the Middle East in particular, uh, helping Nasser's Egypt develop weapons of mass destruction uh, to attack Israel, uh, teaching secret interrogation techniques and interrogation and torture in Egypt, in Syria, in Libya, uh, across North, America, North Africa. So we had a lot of people who actually left World War II, at the end of World War II, left Europe, committed Nazis, who actually then converted to Islam. Yeah, and at that's the end of, bizarre. That's right in your book, too. I yeah. found that so bizarre. I give you a list, actually, of names of some of the most, uh, the, the most famous Nazi leaders who actually converted to Islam, including their Muslim names. Um, they found that this was a religion they could relate to, uh, for good or for ill, and they adapted, uh, they adapted the culture, they adapted the religion, and they certainly made themselves useful to some of the most repressive regimes in the Middle East. Now, the common denominator in all this is the Jews living in Palestine at the time, and then Israel, of course. Was there a big connection with Persia, Iran? Iran essentially means Aryan when you translate it from, uh, from Farsi. Yes, exactly. The, the thing that the Nazis liked about Iran is the fact that they were not Semitic at all. They were not Arabs or Jews. They're uh, at their racial background, their, their genetic background, was quote-unquote Aryan. It was, uh, they were not part of the rest of the Middle East. So there was an idea that this was, these were common allies, and not just Iranians. Uh, they went further afield than that. Um, there were rumors that maybe Af the Afghanis 
might be Aryans as well, and then all the way up to Tibet. So there was this idea that maybe Tibetans were Aryans. Maybe there was their genetic lineage of the Aryan race could be traced as far as the Himalayas. And this was a dream of Heinrich Himmler and the SS for, for many years. They believe that uh, there's a racial component to this and that we shouldn't look at Islam so much as a, uh, a religion that came out of Christianity and Judaism, but as something which was an Aryanization of those quote-unquote slave religions. Peter Lemend is our guest tonight, folks. Don't go anywhere. You're going to want to stick around for the full two hours. www.nightfrightshow.com. As always, click on tonight's guest book cover. There'll be several book covers there. We're going to uh, put up Ratline as well, as well as Unholy Alliance. Just click on the book cover. From the comfort of your own home, you can order the book and get it. You're going to want to get all three because they all tie in together, and it will help bring you right up to date of how we got from there, Second World War, before that, World War One, to today. And I think that's essential, uh, especially given the fact that there's terrorist attacks even in Canada now. We had one a few weeks ago. So uh, this is essential information for anybody living in the 21st century. Peter, going back to that now, we had mentioned Nasser. Let's go back a little bit to pre-World War II for a second. Now, something that was shocking to me, and I'd always known kind of in the back of my head, because I'd, I'd read it in other books, but you do a great deal of research on some Americans with repute that had both been supporting the Nazis pre-World uh, War II, and once World War II started, the Americans were on board to conquest the, the Nazis. And some of those names are people like Harriman, um, some of the names are Ford, things like that. Can we talk about that whole scenario for a second? Well, this is this is something that we're we go through all the time. I think in the United States, we we have this this polarization that takes place. We're always talking about it now in the United States. We're polarized, red and blue, uh, Republican and Democrat. But this kind of polarization is is really endemic, I think, to our society. Perhaps since the Civil War, uh, maybe since even before that, but most especially in the years right after World War One. We had corporations like Ford Motor, uh, Henry Ford himself, like Charles Lindbergh. We had people who were famous American names who were supportive of Nazism. I mean, Henry Ford was a notorious anti-Semite, for instance. He wrote articles on, uh, on the Jews, horrible uh, articles, uh, castigating the Jews for everything, in a newspaper that he eventually bought and owned. Uh, and these essays were later, later collected in a book uh, called The International Jew. Uh, internationalism... Is, is, a, is a bad word among the nationalists. Internationalism is practically a code word for communism, and he used it that way. Uh, the Jews were international, therefore they were evil. Um, I'm from New York City. I'm from the Bronx. Uh, for us, international is pretty much what we are, and to call us anti-American, well, you know, like, uh, like Humphrey Bogart said in Casablanca, there are certain sections in New York I wouldn't suggest you try to invade. But for the most part, we feel that this is, this is something that we have to contend with constantly in this country. Big business prides itself on being pragmatic. They pride themselves on making the tough decisions. They pride themselves on being the people who uh, feel, feel you have to bring yourself up by your bootstraps, and they're the individualists. And for some reason, they always wind up on the, side, on the wrong side of, of history. Uh, in a case like this, they were very much in favor of um, the Nazi movement. They saw in Hitler a person who was going to get Germany straight, who was going to make Germany strong again, a leader in Europe, someone they could invest with, someone, someone they could trust. 
And these corporate uh, leaders felt that to get into a war with Hitler was very bad for America. They wanted to keep us out of war as much as possible. Anyone who wanted to go to war with Germany was probably a Jew, was probably a communist, and the biggest target they had in their list was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They called Roosevelt all sorts of names. They called him a communist. They called him a Jew. They called him all sorts of, of horrible names because of the New Deal, because of the way he tried to pull us out of the Great Depression. This all sounds very familiar today. And if you were to go and look at some of the broadsides that were printed in the 1920s and the 1930s against Roosevelt, you would see some very uncomfortable uh, similarities to some of the stuff that's been printed today about uh, the current president. So what you have is this idea that if you are an internationalist, then you are not American. You are anti-American. Uh, the old joke about uh, if you speak three languages, you're trilingual. Two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak one language, you're an American. Uh, this, this idea that we are anti-international is something that I've had to contend with all the time. I'm a person who's dealt in international trade most of my life. Um, and knowing about foreign countries and knowing foreign languages and having traveled abroad always makes me suspect in the eyes of corporate types who find that that's sort of beneath you. You shouldn't be uh, going native like that, you know, learning a foreign language and understanding a foreign culture. Uh, so there is a, a personality, there's a cultural divide between those who believe that America first means to be insular, to be parochial, to be cut off from the rest of the world, to be isolationist, and those who feel that America should export its best values abroad. So there's tension between the two. Is, it was very evident in the 1920s and the 1930s. Can you tell us what was going on in the 30s, why it was so feared? I mean, you've got J. Edgar Hoover all over this thing, big time. Uh, you've got all these people fearing communism. Even the, uh, the church, the Catholic Church, made the Concordia in 1933 uh, with Hitler, siding with Hitler because they feared communism more than Nazism, fascism. Sure. Well, it was the corporations who drove that because what we were experiencing at that same period in the United States was the rise of the unions and the unions were a direct threat to corporate power and it was believed that the unions were a tool of socialism and communism that it was the communist party driving the unions and that might very well have been true in some cases that didn't mean it was wrong uh... the unions were trying to protect the rights and the lives of the workers who were being exploited horribly now uh... at those in, in those days the unions were considered synonymous with communism and synonymous with jews uh, there was a belief, a very strong belief in the United States in the 1930s that Jews in the United States were importing Jews from Eastern Europe and firing non-Jews from their companies to hire these Jewish immigrants. This was something we're again experiencing today just with different, different ethnicities, but basically the same idea. These are unwanted immigrants taking jobs away from you know, true blue, red-blooded Americans. And this was the, this was the, the narrative at that time. So all of this was considered part of an international plot. It was believed that the Bolshevik Revolution was a Jewish revolution, financed by the Jews, run by the Jews. Communism was a creation of the Jews. And yes, Karl Marx was Jewish, but he was a self-hating Jew. Yes. Karl Marx wrote a, 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 a horrible essay on, uh, on human rights and on Judaism and on the, the threat of, of Judaism and the, saying that the Jews, quote-unquote, had created the concept of human rights in order to protect themselves from being, uh, from being punished for all of the evils they had created in the world. Uh, capitalism was considered to be kind of a creation uh, of the Jews, which is very funny, because so was communism. Uh, these two things were fighting against each other. 
And yet the, the extreme right in the United States had an argument for that. They said, yes, the Jews are trying to destroy our countries. They're trying to take over using their own system, which will be neither a capitalist nor a communist. Uh, it's going to be some amalgamation of the two. And the irony is that's exactly what Hitler wanted to achieve. Why did the, these corporations we just talked about, why did they stay with Hitler, even though the, American, uh, the U.S., the Western alliance, the allies, had declared war against Hitler? And we were always obviously in a fight for our, our way of life. Was it money? Hitler, it was money. Hitler was financed by German corporate executives, but also by American corporate executives and by American corporations and, and foreign corporations around the world. Everybody was throwing money at Hitler. They thought that Hitler would be the bulwark against Russian-style communism. Mm. Remember, in 1918 and 1919, Germany almost went communist. There were communist revolutions in the streets. Berlin was going socialist. Um, they were raising the red flag over the ships in the harbors of Germany. Uh, Munich almost went communist. There was a pitched fight in the streets in 1919 between extreme right and extreme left people for, for control of that city. So it was believed that someone like Hitler could keep Germany from being communist and therefore be the bulwark for Western Europe, protect all of Western Europe against communism. Uh, Shell Oil was heavily involved in Germany. IT&T, heavily involved. IBM, heavily involved. There was no way they could extricate themselves from these business relationships. And so there was a bank created in Switzerland, the Bank of International Settlements, BIS. And the head of that bank at, during the war was an American. But most of the people who were bank officers were Nazis or they were members of puppet regimes that had been created by the Nazis, such as the Czechoslovak, Czech and the Slovak regimes. There was so much going on uh, financially during the war, that we're, of which we are not aware, because we don't really follow the financial end of this. At one point, the president of BIS, Thomas McKittrick, went back to the United States, and he told a group of investors there, this is like in 1943-44, don't worry about Germany, everything is solid, your investments are secure, Hitler will keep this thing together. This is an American talking to Americans in America, telling them to keep supporting the Third Reich. This is what we're, we're faced with. Uh, after the war was over, a report came out, which was published and which disappeared, but which I have a copy of and you can get copies of it now. In 1946, the US Congress published this extensive report on all the holdings of German corporations around the world that had survived the end of the war. In other words, companies like AEG, Tyson, Krupp, all of these companies had subsidiaries. We're talking about hundreds of subsidiaries around the world, which was designed to protect the investments that people had made in Germany. So they expatriated technology. They expatriated funds. In many cases, they expatriated personnel. These people went and lived in Latin America, they lived in North Africa, in Asia, in North America as well, AEG in North America. Many German companies had subsidiaries in the United States that were doing remarkably well after the war. And this was German money, these were German investments, this was German companies that were going to survive the war and help rebuild Germany once again. The Nazis had the long view. They said, okay, we're losing the war. By 1944, everyone knew they were going to lose the war. They said, let's get as much money out as possible. Let's get as, much as many personnel as possible, as much information and technology. People were told, get it, get it out of the reach of the Allies. Can we talk about what you write in the book, the Red House Report? Sure. This, this is, is where we're going right now, folks. This is, exactly. This is a, a very controversial report. A lot of people today want to say the report was uh, fallacious, that it wasn't real, that it was a, a hoax report. Of course, this is not true. 
the Red House report was considered genuine in the 1940s, considered genuine during the Congress uh, report that I just spoke about. Uh, CIA felt it was, uh, or the OSS at the time, felt it was genuine. There was a meeting in 1944 in Strasbourg, uh, which was German territory at the time. Uh, many leaders of the German economy, German corporate types, financiers and corporate executives, were being lectured to by the SS. Uh, an SS officer told them, we're at the verge of losing the war. Uh, we know the Allies will take over. We have you know, very limited options. We don't want to fall into the hands of the Soviets, because that would be the end. Uh, but at the same time, the Allies are going to probably use a scorched earth policy against us. Mm -hmm. And there were many people within the American administration, within the, the administration of, at that point, President Truman, who wanted to destroy Germany, basically level their factories, level everything, make it impossible for Germany to declare war again. So there was a tremendous pressure from people like Morgenthau in the, uh, in the Truman administration who wanted to put an end to Germany forever. The Nazis knew this. And so the corporate executives were told, bluntly, get as much of your information, of your money, of your assets, of your technology out of Europe as possible. Get it out of the reach of the Allies. Uh, they had already set up in Latin America. Latin America had been used as a target uh, for, for German uh, and for Nazi investments all the way back since before the war. Money was flowing in in that direction. Personnel were flowing to South America. There was a huge infrastructure being built up of German companies like Siemens, like Volkswagen, like a lot of these other corporations, AAG, Telefunken, uh, everybody, Tyson, Krupp, all building plants, uh, buying subsidiary companies in foreign uh, countries and moving their money that way, laundering funds, moving personnel and technology. So they were told to continue to do this effect, to ramp it up and make sure as much as possible of German uh, wealth, whether it was intellectual wealth or, or monetary wealth, escaped the clutches of the Allies. And they were quite successful in doing this. As the, the, congression, the congressional report in the 1940s uh, proved, they have lists and lists of companies, their addresses, their locations, and we could do nothing about it. We couldn't simply go in and invade Argentina and clear that up. And yet we had politicians politicians who were very anti-communist, but who also felt that we shouldn't be pro-Nazi in the process. And these politicians tried to get some of these companies, to, some of these countries to clean up their acts, to, to clamp down on the, the German uh, organizations within their countries, and that was to no avail. Uh, a man like Spruill Braden uh, suffered tremendous calumny by another American, by William Pauley, a man who was very involved with the, the Flying Tigers during the war in Asia, a very rabid anti-communist uh, who tried to get Braden fired because Braden simply wanted to go against Argentina, against the Perón government, and get Juan Perón to arrest the Nazis in his own country. Uh, we had a division in, in the United States that was incredible. If you were anti-communist, you had to be, if not pro-Nazi, you had to at least look the other way. If you went after the Nazis, it meant you were not American. It meant you were pro-communist or you were soft on communism. Those are the only two points of view you could have. Those are the only two ways you could think, communist or American, uh, Nazi or communist. This was, this was all you had. Um, and this is what we did. Corporation, corporations did it. And we trusted our corporations. We trusted Quaker Oats, for instance. Uh, Quaker Oats was one of the, the people who's, one of the companies who uh, was very much against getting involved in World War II, who wanted to keep us out of the war and not because they were Quakers. Uh, IBM, IT&T, all these corporations wanted us to stay out because they had those investments. Um, Walter Schellenberg, head of the uh, counterintelligence for the SS, uh, was on the board of IT&T during the war. Uh, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, 
who was the second in command to Heinrich Himmler in the SS, also ran Interpol during the war. So we have, it was so inextricably linked, so inextricably connected, we could not simply defeat Germany and have it over with. It was never going to happen. This was the first real incidence of what we call today globalization, and it started with the defeat of Nazi Germany. Peter Lavenda, folks, his book is called The Hitler Legacy, The Nazi Cult in Diaspora, How It Was Organized, How It Was Funded, and Why It Remains a Threat to Global Security in the Age of Terrorism, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on all the book covers associated with tonight's guest. That'll take you right to a spot. Get the books. There's three of them I can recommend right away. Unholy Alliance. Then it goes into Ratline, how the Nazis got out of um, uh, Germany and uh, through various means. And uh, this latest book uh, brings us right up to date on where Islamic terrorism has its foundations, and that's terrifying. We'll be getting to that in a few minutes, but we have to build it from the ground up. You can't just jump in at the top. Okay, let's go to a fellow by the name of the Mufti and talk about the Middle East and how that was such an attractive area for the Nazis as well. Also, I wanted to mention, folks, uh, Peter had just talked about Latin America. And uh, on CNN the other day, there was a report where a helicopter, if I'm not mistaken, was flying over looking for a drug dealer, a huge mansion, and uh, at the bottom of a swimming pool was a huge swastika. And we know that a lot of ex-German patriots escaped to Brazil as well. So there you go. It continues to this day. Okay, let's talk about the Middle East. If you recall, World War I, uh, the, the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, was allied with the, Germ with the Kaiser's Germany uh, fighting the West. So it was Germany and the Turks. If anybody remembers the movie Lawrence of Arabia, the basic story is there. Um, so what happened was the Ottoman Turks uh, were on the fence uh, as World War I broke out. And a strange German archaeologist by the man called, by the, a man by the name of Max von Oppenheim, uh, who considered himself an, a Middle East expert, went to the Kaiser, who was a friend of his, and asked the Kaiser, wouldn't it be wise if we approached the head of the Ottoman Empire, we approached the Sultan, and told him to create a jihad, a global jihad, a jihad of all Muslims everywhere in the world against their colonial masters, against basically the English, the French, and the Russians. Those were the enemies of Germany at the time, Let's get all the Muslims in the world to rise up in North Africa, in the Middle East, anywhere, to throw out the colonizers. They'd be on our side. We'd form an alliance between Germany and the Ottoman Empire, Germany and Turkey. And the Sultan went along with this. And there we have the first ever global jihad. There was, jihad has always been in Islam. It's always been part of Islam. It's been part of, in, in different ways, and part of Christianity as well. The idea of a struggle, a struggle of the soul, a struggle of the spirit, um, and also the idea that you have to defend your fellow uh, faithful against attacks from, from the non-faithful or the unfaithful or even from other faithful. Uh, in Islam, jihad can be against your neighboring tribe. It can be against a neighboring country. You might both be Muslims, but jihad may still exist. But by World War I, we suddenly had a new creation, global jihad. And the Sultan issued a fatwa urging all Muslims around the world, telling them it was their sacred obligation and duty to rise up against the British, the French, and the Russians to get rid of them all to rise up in this war. Uh, the fatwa was issued and basically nobody listened to it. We had the Arab tribes fighting each other as we saw in the movie Lawrence of Arabia sketchily. Uh, we had Prince Faisal, uh, not sure which side he was going to be on. We had Ibn Saud, 
who was also being manipulated by various Western powers. So you had Saud and Faisal fighting each other and both of them fighting the Turks. So in the end, what happened? World War I was over. Turkey fell. The Arab revolt felt, well, you know, we assisted the British and we assisted the French in their war against the Turks. They promised us liberation. They promised us we'd be free. We have been under the Ottomans for more than 500 years. It's our due. It's our time. And the British and French said, not so fast. They got out their pens, they got out their maps, and Sykes two archaeologists, Pico. yeah, Sykes-Pico, and the two archaeologists, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and Gertrude Bell, very famous lady, probably the most famous uh, uh, female archaeologist ever, uh, who founded the Baghdad Museum, among other things. They got together, they got a big map out of the Middle East, and they got a ruler and some pens, and they drew the boundaries of what is now the Middle East. The British had, had promised uh, the Zionist uh, leadership that they would have a mandate, they would have uh, their own country, their own nation in, in Palestine, they'd have their own homeland. Prince Faisal was okay with it for the most part, you know, he was willing to, to accept that as long as the whole place was still under Arab control or Muslim control. Uh, of course, that didn't happen, the whole thing fell apart. And during all of this, we have a man called al-Husseini. Al-Husseini was a, a young man who had fought in the Ottoman Empire, had fought with the Turks against the West, who believed in Faisal, who believed in this kind of pan-Arab yeah. union that Faisal was trying to create. But when Faisal lost his battle, uh, when he lost uh, his, his position because of Sykes-Picot and wound up as king of Iraq, which made no sense, but anyway, there he was. Al-Husseini then became soured on the entire process. And when he saw what was happening in Palestine, where he had British troops controlling Palestine, uh, he decided this was enough was enough. Uh, he, through various machinations and politics and Byzantine intrigues, got himself named to be the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Now, the Grand Mufti is the ultimate religious authority for Muslims in that particular geographical region. He had no special training for this. He had gone to Al-Azhar University in Cairo, never graduated, but he had studied with some of the Wahhabis and Salafists, uh, the, the extreme fundamentalist type of Muslims, and he was now bringing this to the Palestine issue. Uh, he raised uh, groups of Arabs to fight against the Jews in, in Palestine. The whole thing got very messy. The British tried to put down a lot of these riots, kind of siding with the Muslims against the Jews for the most part, because even the British were not 100% sure that the, these European Jews that were being shipped in by, by the boatload really belonged in Palestine. There was a lot of argument over this. And in the end, al-Husseini became the prominent, most prominent spokesperson for Arab liberation in the Middle East. He became a firebrand. He was a very well-known, charismatic individual, blue-eyed, uh, light-colored hair, somebody who could pass for an Aryan in Germany, and that's basically what happened. As World War II was starting, as Hitler became the Chancellor of the Reich in 1933, al-Husseini is thinking this would make a great ally. He hates the Jews as much as we do. Let me go and see if I can form a common alliance with him. Eichmann, before Eichmann was Eichmann, Eichmann was traveling to the Middle East to meet with al-Husseini and to meet with other Arab leaders to see what kind of arrangements they could make, to see if maybe they should ship some of their Jews out there. Uh, Al-Husseini was re rejecting this because we don't need any more Jews in Palestine from his point of view. So that deal fell through. But then later, by 1940-41, al-Husseini was in Berlin. He was meeting with Hitler, he was meeting with Heinrich Himmler, and they actually raised a Muslim SS division, the Bosnian Mountain Division, the Hanshar Division of the SS, composed mostly of Muslims, 
whose leaders were called imams. So you had um, a Muslim division, you had al-Husseini, many famous photographs of him blessing the troops, uh, reviewing the, the Bosnian Muslim troops, and you had this, this sectarian war that was taking place in the former Yugoslavia, or the, the future Yugoslavia, and also taking place in the Middle East. He was the leader of all of this. He was the person who brought uh, Nazi ideas and wedded them together with ideas of Arab nationalism. And that's why today you go to the Middle East, you go to most Muslim countries around the world, and you will find copies of Mein Kampf in local translations, Hitler's autobiography, and you will find copies of Henry Ford's The International Jew in local languages as well. These were considered to be the Westerners who were most uh, supportive of Islam because they hated Israel as much as the Muslims supposedly hated Israel. So this is this was the narrative. This was the idea. This was the story that was being told. As World War II ended, the Grand Mufti had to go into hiding for a while. Can he I just later... ask you a quick question? Yes. Sure. I was always under the belief, or the rumor was, that al-Husseini, when he met with Hitler, asked Hitler to install extermination camps in the Middle East to get rid of the Jews there. Is there any oh, truth behind that? Absolutely. Okay. I mean... Yeah, Al-Husseini was totally in favor of that. There was a man called Walter Rauf. Mm. Walter Rauf was an SS officer, very high up, the man who invented the mobile gas chambers, the man who invented the gas vans, the very first uh, step towards the extermination chambers, the gas chambers. Walter Rauf uh, accompanied Rommel in North Africa during the North African campaign, the Africa Corps period. He would follow Rommel's army, and every time they went through a town, he would find whatever Jews there were, round them up, and have them killed. That was his function. So he was a firm believer in all of this, a good friend of the people around al-Husseini, and they were cutting deals together. Al-Husseini definitely said, you know, we want to do in the Middle East what you are doing in Europe. We'll help you. We will help exterminate the last of the Jews uh, that are in the Middle East. This is going to be a cooperation between our two great nations, our two great uh, organizations. Uh, Hitler, of course, uh, passed that over to Heinrich Himmler, and Himmler was extremely enthusiastic about that and decided to give al-Husseini as much uh, support as he could. And what he did is he gave al-Husseini a villa in Berlin, out of which Husseini was completely paid for by the Nazis, and Husseini would make uh, radio broadcasts in local languages to the Middle East, telling them that Hitler was their savior, Hitler was uh, following in the steps of the prophet, Hitler was the person that was going to liberate them from the colonial powers. Once again, we're back to the British, the French, and the Russians. So all of this is taking place uh, in the same place, using the same language. I just want to jump ahead one second just to show you how powerful this message was. I was in Indonesia in 2007. I was in the city of Solo in Java and with a group of people called the Psychologists for Peace. Uh, we visited Abu Bakr Ba'ashir, whom you mentioned at the very top of the, of the program. He was the founder of Jama'a Islamiyah, which is a, an Al-Qaeda affiliate. He founded another uh, terrorist organization in Indonesia later. He was the person responsible, the spiritual author, we could say, of the Bali bombings of 2002. We met with him. I was sitting right across the table from him uh, and listening to him talk. And his entire narrative was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy, was the Jews and the Masons trying to take over the world, was everything out of the 1933 playbook. There are no Jews in Indonesia. <laughs> I mean, there are. There's maybe... 20 or 30, 100 tops. There's not enough men for a minion to hold a service in any synagogue in Indonesia. And yet, this man was paranoid about a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. But a minion, folks, just right away, it, it's uh, 10 men. 
Ten men. To, yep. Come right. together to pray. Yep. They have to be of Jewish. Uh, they have to be. Yeah. Right. Jewish. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, that's perfectly. And and they're just not enough. Um, so there is a synagogue in uh, in Surabaya in in uh, in Indonesia, and it's empty because there's just not enough people for a service. And yet this man was paranoid about a Jewish conspiracy. Uh, the Jews are running the world. The Jews run the United States. Um, this whole entire narrative is what I heard from him. And it was like sitting across from someone in the 1930s telling me the same, the same thing. No deviation. No, nothing changed. Nothing different. But the message was there. And he's writing you know, introductions. Well, he, he's, it's claimed he's illiterate. But anyway, he's authoring uh, introductions to books on... Um, you know, on worldwide uh, conspiracies, on Illuminati symbols, on the dollar bill, on all this other stuff that you were familiar with, with conspiracy theory in this country. And yet, over there, it takes this completely anti-Semitic slant. The whole thing is an attack on Jews in general, and the United States in particular. Uh, one book in particular he was involved with uh, equates Osama bin Laden with Moses, and the Bush dynasty with the pharaohs. Go figure. But anyway... This is what we're, we're dealing with, this kind of this conspiratorial mentality, which was very common in Europe in the 1920s and 30s, and equally common in North America and in the United States. Mm -hmm. Do you figure the protocols of the elders of Zion plays into this part and parcel? Now, this is a book, folks, that was fabricated um, to make it look like there was a huge Jewish conspiracy taking place right around the world and this book came out and a lot of people believed it was factual that the Jews were indeed causing um, all the wars the Jews were indeed uh, trying to take over the world uh, the numbers just aren't there this is this book has been proven to be a falsehood completely do you think that this book is kind of the Bible that they all revert back to I know in the Middle East a lot a lot of very learned people still believe this book is factual Oh, they do. Very much so. I've had arguments with people over this very mm -hmm. issue. In fact, the protocols were actually read into the congressional re record back in the 1930s by one of our own congressmen. Um, I mean, this is something that, you know, it was believed to be true by very many otherwise intelligent people. And the protocols are in translation everywhere. I picked up copies of the protocols in Latin America and Spanish, in Indonesia, in the local Bahasa, Indonesia. I picked it up everywhere, in Malaysia as well. It's available everywhere. Um, wherever you're going to find Mein Kampf and, and Henry Ford's book, you'll find the protocols. And it's considered authoritative. It's considered real. And today in the Middle East, they will point to the protocols and say, see, it's happening. See, it's working. Mm -hmm. When Israel was created, uh, the state of Israel was created, I mean, first by uh, the mandate where the British were in control of it until 1948. Up until that time, um, what's, what's interesting is that the Arabs and I'm saying Arabs in general, not just Muslims, Arab Christians as well. The Arabs pointed to the protocols and, you said, and said, see, it's all coming to pass the way the protocols said. Um, the, this, the Israel's being created. You know, all of this stuff is happening. The, the foreign governments uh, of England, of France, of the United States are all cooperating in the creation of the state, exactly what the protocols were saying was going to happen, that they were going to be, all be manipulated to create uh, the, the state of Israel. They are pointing very selectively, of course, and totally out of context, as usual, uh, for you know, some kinds of conspiracy theorists. They are pointing at this and cherry-picking it, and they're saying, looking at history and saying history is coming to pass the way the protocols said they would. And this is the problem, right? Uh, the protocols are so vague, just talking about a general takeover, we're going to take over the media, we'll take over the banks, we'll take over the corporations and you know, the means of production, basically. 
And uh, whenever that happens, uh, uh, someone in the Middle East will point to the protocols and say, well, that means that the protocols are real, because that's what the protocols predicted would happen. Okay, Peter Levend is our guest tonight, folks. I, sh I got to push his book more. The Hitler Legacy, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you will find another uh, book cover that you can click on, and that is Unholy Alliance, and another one, uh, Ratline. And fans of the show will know Peter's been on the show before. You can find the show for Ratline in our archives, www.nightfrightshow.com. Get the books, folks. This is real, real serious stuff and will explain how we got from where we were to where we are. And it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Okay, we got up to the end of the World War II. All of a sudden, you've got this Nazi intelligentsia spreading out around the world. And that was kind of the, the point I was trying to make. Some sp spread to Indonesia, Southeast Asia. Some went to Latin America. Others came to Canada, folks. Others came, you know, we still find more criminals everywhere in the world. Uh, Sweden. Uh, so the ideology manifests right around the world. Can we pick it up and explain how this has caused many governments to, um, I guess, appease uh, uh, terrorism in, it, in their own respects would be a good way to put it? Well, what we look at as the modern uh, phenomenon of terrorism did not begin with, with Muslims. It began really with the extreme right. Uh, when I say extreme right, I don't want to irritate anybody in the United States who consider themselves right wing. What I really mean by that is the, uh, the terrorist organizations that started up uh, being run out of Latin America and of Europe against communists. Uh, we had bombings of train stations. In, in, in Europe. We had bombing of a disco in Germany. We had uh, American soldiers who were targeted. And these were not targeted by communists. These were not targeted by, you know, Islamo-fascists, quote-unquote, whatever that is. They were targeted by the right, the extreme right, who felt that uh, they had to make a statement. We can trace it all the way back to Operation Condor in South America, which was an organization, uh, kind of an ad hoc group of the governments of Chile, Argentina, um, Brazil to a certain extent, Bolivia to a certain extent, uh, Paraguay, company, uh, countries that wanted to um, assassinate political leaders on, on the left. They wanted to assassinate socialists, they wanted to assassinate leftists of various kinds, whether in Europe or Latin America or anywhere, including, of course, the assassination of Orlando Letelier in Washington, D.C. Uh, so it was a homegrown uh, terrorist who did that, a man called uh, Michael Townley, uh, Townley got his training in Chile under the regime of Augusto Pinochet. Uh, for your readers, this is a history lesson, I guess, but um, we're going back to, uh, to Chile in 1970. There was a socialist elected president, democratically elected president, Salvador Allende. Um, the recently released uh, Oval Office uh, transcripts between Nixon and Kissinger show that they had determined from the very beginning he was not going to serve out his term. And, of course, he didn't. There was a uh, military coup on September 11th, 1973, and he was deposed, uh, murdered or committed suicide at La Moneda at the presidential palace. And a man called Pinochet, a man who had trained in the United States at our American uh, military uh, universities, had gone down and uh, you know, basically oversaw this operation. He uh, became president of Chile for life. Uh, he closed the parliament, he closed con the, the Chilean Congress, and established martial law. And as part of this, he decided to go against um, communists, leftists, socialists, anybody who disagreed with him, basically. People were rounded up, 
disappeared, murdered. Uh, one of the places where this happened was a, a place that I visited uh, back in 1979 called Colonia Dignidad in Chile. It was a safe house for Nazi war criminals. It was a, um, a refuge uh, for Germans who were on the run for various reasons. The man who ran it uh, was a convicted child molester who was also a Luftwaffe medical officer during the war and a Baptist minister of some kind. Um, and he created this elaborate, very heavily fortified, very wealthy estate in the mountains of Chile, south of Santiago. In Unholy Alliance, I talk about it. I visited the estate. I gay-crashed it, basically. I uh, was detained for a while. Uh, it was a very harrowing experience. I did manage to, to get out. They, they kicked me out of the country, basically. Um, and on, only later, only in the last few years, have I discovered that not only was it a major station for Operation Condor, this assassination and terrorism network that spanned the globe. They were also involved in creating weapons of mass destruction, biological and chemical weapons. Uh, there's photographs of it now. There's a YouTube video showing how the Chilean uh, military and uh, police went into the colony, showing what they found, uh, interviews with people who were there. It's a harrowing, harrowing story. And yet that's just one node on this network of terrorism that really started all the way back in the 1940s and 1950s with the expulsion of the Nazis with their diaspora around the world, uh, creating bonds with military commanders in countries around the world, including, of course, in, in um, the Middle East and North Africa, but especially in Latin America, and in some cases with North America as well. Uh, we know, of course, that we helped Klaus Barbie to escape. Mm -hmm. We helped a lot of other war criminals to escape. We took in hundreds under Operation Paperclip uh, just for the science end of it. We took in hundreds of hundreds more, tens of hundreds more, uh, in Eastern Europe running uh, the Galen organization, which basically was CIA's Eastern European desk for a long time. Um, we cooperated with Nazi war criminals everywhere. And by doing this, we gave tacit uh, approval to the escape of many war criminals and implicit approval for many thousands more around the world. We had been protecting them because we didn't go after them. We basically sold our soul because we were afraid of communism. So we cut a lot of deals with very ugly people, with people with horrible backgrounds, people who were in the SS, people who had committed atrocities. We whitewashed their backgrounds. People like Walter Dornberger, people like Werner von Braun, people who had, um, excuse me, high ranks in the SS, people who were convinced, committed Nazis, people who were true believers. We brought to our country or we helped escape to other countries. I think one thing you might find valuable in the Hitler legacy, this doesn't appear anywhere else in print in the world, it is one of the appendices which contains uh, the entire notebook or address book of Hans Ulrich Rudel. Hans Ulrich Rudel was Hitler's favorite pilot. This was a World War II ace. This was a very famous uh, uh, figure in, in, in World War II, not just among the Nazis, but among a lot of other people. Uh, everyone knew who Rudel was. This was a very nice guy according to a lot of people. And I've spoken with people who spoke with him. I've spoken with people who knew him. His address book, which I painstakingly went through, translating every single line, trying to identify every single person in that address book, which was very tedious work, I can tell you, written in German, uh, photocopied from uh, you know, a, a file that the CIA, I think, inadvertently declassified because it was part of the Mengele file. The names and addresses in there will tell you the story. It will tell you the story of Odessa. Uh, it's there in his own handwriting. Names, dates, places, phone numbers, addresses, money, in some cases, amounts of money that were being sent to various places around the world. 
including to places in the United States. There's, there's notations there about American citizens who were part of Rudel's network, as well as people, of course, in Latin America, throughout Latin America, throughout Paraguay, Argentina, Chile, everywhere else. Some of the names that we've mentioned here on this program so far are found in his address book. Rudel knew everyone. And Rudel, it's important to realize, was one of the founders and one of the major machines behind Odessa, behind the Nazi underground network. He was one of their most vocal, most prominent supporters, uh, leaders, along with a man called Otto Skorzeny. Skorzeny was Hitler's favorite commando. So he had his favorite commando and his favorite pilot running essentially an underground network of Nazis and sympathizers around the world. When you ask today, aren't all the Nazis dead? Or aren't they like 95 years old and who cares anymore? Look at the address book. These are, this is the new generation. These are people who were fellow travelers, people who grew up admiring the Nazis, people who grew up admiring Rudel himself or Skorzeny, people involved in the arms trade, people involved in drug trade and human trafficking. You'll find those names there and you'll realize the extent to which this, this sickness has spread across the world. You know, it's absolutely terrifying, folks. And Peter Lavenda has done incredible work here. I've got to urge you all to get this book. All three of his books I've mentioned tonight on Holy Alliance, Ratline, and his latest book, The Hitler Legacy, www.nightfrightshow.com. We're going to have to start to wrap up this segment of the show. There'll be another segment in a few minutes, uh, another hour's worth. I'm going to throw a name out right now that many people don't associate with Nazis. Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. When I read that in this book, I got goosebumps and chills. And we'll explain that in the second hour of this show. So don't go anywhere. We're also going to go into Odessa in more detail. And we're going to look at the terrorism that is just burgeoning everywhere and how the Nazis instigated this and whether or not the actual global jihad is actually Nazism in disguise. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. I want to thank Peter for joining us for this first hour. Looking forward to the second hour, Peter. See you My all. pleasure. See you all next time. witness accounts for yours right now nightfrightshow.com